Welcome to The Grizzly Beat, a podcast of Grizzly Times and Louisa Wilcox, where we interview scientific experts, managers, Native Americans, writers, and others to share their knowledge, perspectives, and experience. This comes at a time of enormous interest in the grizzly bear's future as the government proposes to remove federal protections and citizens are asking important questions. We hope the information shared here will help listeners shape their own answers. This is Louisa Wilcox with the Grizzly Beat, and we're delighted to be here today with Dr. Mark Beckoff. Mark is a former professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at the University of Colorado Boulder and is a fellow of the Animal Behavior Society and a past Guggenheim Fellow. His scientific research includes animal behavior, cognitive ethology, which is the study of animal minds, behavioral ecology, and compassionate conservation. He's published extensively on animal-human interactions and animal protection, publishing more than 1,000 essays and 30 books so far. Uh, Mark is also ambassador of Jane Goodall's Roots and Shoots program, in which he works with students of all ages, senior citizens, and prisoners. And he and Jane co-founded the organization Ethologists for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. We're delighted to have you here today, Mark. My pleasure, Louisa. Thank you for your interest in what I have to say. (laughs) Absolutely. So how did you first get interested in animals and animal research? Um, My parents tell me that when I was about three, I I began asking them um, what animals were thinking and what they were feeling. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, on a lot of concrete. But, you know, there were dogs and squirrels and birds and insects. And that actually led to my whole idea about minding animals. I wrote a book called Minding Animals that was published in 2002. And it, um, the phrase really refers to minding animals in terms of caring for them, being their guardians, and minding them, attributing minds to them. I mean, it... it it never ever dawned on me that anybody, you know, could ask whether you know certain animals are smart or whether they're sentient. So, I also grew up in a really passionate um, home, and I always attribute my my passion and empathy to my mother and my drive and my positive um, attitudes to my father. So, I was lucky. I mean, I, I'm not sure what else I can say other than I'm lucky. <laughs> Great. So, Mark. Much of your work has focused on animal behavior and relationships with each other and also with humans. And you have described in many ways that animals are very much like us. They feel love and pain and grief and joy. And, and there are phenomenons such as animal altruism with humpback whales saving seals from predation by orcas. How has your deepening understanding shaped your views on how you think animals should be treated? Yeah, um, well, you know, honestly, I, I've always been interested in protecting, excuse me, I've always been interested in protecting animals, and so I came to this with a natural sort of bias, but as the years went on, it just became clearer that we're dealing, you know, predominantly with sentient and feeling beings who care about what happens to them and their friends and their family. And, you know, they're also smart. Um, I put the feelings ahead of their intelligence, and maybe we'll get into that a little later. But we've reached the point, I mean, we reached it years ago, but we've really reached the point already where we don't need more science 
to motivate action and activism on behalf of the animals. I mean, the science is good. I'm a scientist. I love non-invasive science, but we don't need it anymore. I mean, we know that wolves and grizzly bears and rats and various birds, I mean, just a whole panoply of animals are sentient beings. And so when people say, show me, you know, or people say, well, we really don't know that dogs enjoy themselves when they're playing. I always say, I'm glad I'm not their dog. Um, there's, you know, I mean, there's tons of observations of animal grief and animal mourning, as well as the positive um, emotions. So, so it's deepened in the sense that we know a lot, but it's also deepened in the sense that we need to use what we know, we know on behalf of the animals. So where do you think the breakdown is uh, between what we know and how we're operating, we uh, as individuals or maybe governmental agencies and society at large? Well, I think the breakdown is, I mean, and I say this with all heart, first of all, I think the breakdown comes because there are some people who really believe in human domination. You know, we're living in the Anthropocene, and people call it the age of humanity, and I call it the rage of inhumanity. Um, so, so one, number one, we're in a human-dominated world. And number two, I know it sounds disingenuous, but I think there are people out there who enjoy killing non-human animals. If they didn't do – I mean, this is really an egregious act. And if they didn't get something out of it other than, well, we're doing it for the good of the world or the good of, you know, environment or whatever, then they wouldn't do it. And there have been people – who have gone from being shooters and trappers to just saying, I don't want to do this anymore. So, like I said, I want to be really clear. I don't think it's a very positive attribution, but if you don't want to kill other animals, just don't kill them. And that's, I mean, that's really, um, you know, how I feel about it. So that's one gap. The other gap is that, you know, there's people who deny Whatever you know, there's people who deny climate change in the face of really good science. And mm-hmm. in my book, Rewilding Our Hearts, I had a section called Homo Denialist. We're really mm-hmm. good at selectively denying or ignoring things when they, when say the data, the facts don't serve our interests. So, you know, you still read about some people who go, well, I don't really know that wolves feel emotions. And look at bears, you know, they really can be aggressive. So do they really care about other bears? And I'm, I, I just roll my eyes. But that's another, um, that's the other gap. And in this book I have coming out with Jessica Pierce called The Animal's Agenda, yeah. we talk about the knowledge gap. And that's really the gap where there's a failure to transmit what we know into action. And that, once again, is what my book, Rewilding Our Hearts, is all about, is how we get people to feel the sentiment, we get people to really <clears throat> connect with themselves and stop doing these horrific things. Mm-hmm. Well, you also termed, coined a term, the science of animal well-being that you've been yeah. writing about. Mm-hmm. Can you share your thoughts on what this science is and what it means? Yes, um, animal welfare, <coughs> which we're arguing against, I mean, let me, let me start off saying there's no doubt that animal welfareists, those who favor animal welfare, have helped some animals along. I, I think it would be wrong, <coughs> wrong to say that it's always failed. 
but in the end, animal welfare patronizes other animals. You know, welfareists look at right. sort of do the utilitarian calculus and. Well, if the benefits to humans outweigh the costs to the animals, then it's okay to do something. Mm -hmm. So it really, uh, welfareism really favors trumping non-human interests in favor of human interests. And it also doesn't focus on individual animals. So there are welfareists who go, well, you know, we're going to kill a million brown rats because there's a million more. The science of animal well-being stresses that the life of every single individual counts and we shouldn't be playing what I call the numbers game. Well, there's a lot of one, there's a lot of members of one species, so it's okay to kill or harm others. So it really focuses on the fact that each individual has inherent or intrinsic value and that we are obliged to give the very best life we can to each and every individual even if it means that we can't do certain things. So it also argues against, you know, the inevitability of human interests trumping non-human interests. And it, it's, it's actually, a, it's actually a, a big shift, um, Louisa. Um, and I'll say this to some people. It's not an animal rights position per se. We're not saying that each individual has this or that right. I mean, in a sense... You could look at it that way, but we're really saying that each individual has an interest in being alive, and we need to honor that interest. So you're really talking about kind of a quality of life for animals, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. It's our obligation to do the very best we can for each and every individual. It's, um, you know, individuals count and first do no harm, and that translates back and forth very nicely into the field of compassionate conservation that you know, I'm sure we'll get into. But, you know, some of the, the basic tenets for compassionate conservation are first do no harm and the life of any, every individual matters. Right. It's um, exactly right. So how do you deal in the context of compassionate conservation with uh, what we have here in the northern Rockies <clears throat> with grizzly bears and wolves where you've got state agencies who are very domination-oriented, very killing-oriented. Individuals don't matter. You know, they're widgets on a, in a system, um, and th they're sort of the opposite of what you're calling for. What do you do, what do, you do with this situation? Well, I mean, on, a, on the ground in the practical situation or practical solutions is you talk with them, and you hope you can convince them and by showing them data um, that, you know, killing these animals doesn't work, it's ecologically unsound, and it's unethical. Um, and the other way is just keep putting the message out there and hoping that, hoping they'll get the message and hoping we'll be able to bridge that knowledge gap. Um, you know, it's, it's ideological, you know, the history of, you know, just think of the words, wildlife management. Right? Predator control. Uh, the words they use, we euthanize these animals. We call them, right? We, you know. Harvest. What's that? Harvest. Yeah, we harvest, right. I was going to say we harvest them. No, what they're doing is they're killing them, and it's premeditated. And I've had lots of discussions with people who 
I, I call it murder, like, you know, that trophy hunting is trophy murder. And they'll go, oh, no, murder is only for humans. But you don't ever get a really good answer other than it's ensconced in traditional law. And I really mean that, you know. So mm-hmm. I, 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 you know, I call Wildlife Services Murder, Inc. They are Murder, Inc. They go out. They kill animals. There's a lot of collateral damage. And the sad part about it is they kill themselves, you know, aerial shooting has, mm-hmm. you know, produced a lot of plane accidents where the humans themselves get killed. So, so they also try to sanitize it. They'll sanitize it using, euthan- you know, we euthanize the animal. You know, um, you, you read about that um, on the, the bear Blaze who was killed in Yellowstone. Right. She, wasn't, she wasn't euthanized. That wasn't a mercy killing. She was killed. It was premeditated. Okay, the, you know, there might be reasons in some cases, and they can come up and construct reasons. But the fact of the matter is they try to sanitize it by terminology, euphemism, euphemisms, and they also try to sanitize it in saying we had to do it for this reason or another. You know, we had to do it because, say, an animal like Blaze is more likely to attack another human, Well, which, of course, there's no data for. Or they sanitize it by saying, well, it serves an ecological function. Like it, it's an ecological service. But, but the data belie that. And so do experts. So trying to work with these people is really, really difficult. Um, but we, gotta keep, we, we have to keep doing it because... In the end, um, the killing stops. I heard a talk last year by somebody from Wildlife Services who said that the people, when he goes out or they go out and kill coyotes, the people for whom they're killing the coyotes consider them to be heroes. And I, 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 I didn't go anywhere with it. I, I, number one, it was so outlandish, I didn't know how to respond. Mm-hmm. And number two, you know, part of activism for me is... <coughs> figuring out which are the best, quote, battles to fight um, or to get involved in. And, you know, there's going to be people out there who believe that. And there's going to be people out there who go, well, we don't really know that grizzly bears, you know, feel joy and happiness or grief. Fine. I don't need to talk to them because, because it's a waste of time. I'd rather be talking to people who are open to change. Like, I'm open to change or you're open to change. Yeah. You know, so... Anyway, I'm, I'm rambling on here, but it's, right. it's, 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 it's big, and I'm just hoping that there will be more and more people who just say, you know what, I don't want to kill animals anymore. Number one, it doesn't work. Number two, it's really inhumane, so I don't want to do it anymore. And, and you know, it's the same thing in cutting back in, um, in um, laboratory science, for example. Over the years, there's people who have just basically decided, I don't want to do this anymore. You know, we know rats and mice feel joy, and we know they feel grief, and we know they feel pain, and we know they display empathy. They care for other rats and mice, and we don't want to do this anymore. So it's motivating a change in protocol. Um, So, you know, in a sense, the rewilding notion is playing off of people's personal commitment to making the world a more humane place. Because, because in the end, that's what it comes down to. You, you know, you, you're going to change when you really believe that it's the right thing to do and it's going to accomplish certain goals. Well, along the line of the changes that you described underfoot, um, and it does really seem that public opinion is shifting toward giving animals at least some rights. 
And mm-hmm. last year, the Gallup poll, there was a Gallup poll that found 32% of the people in the U.S. believe that animals should receive the same rights as people, and that represents an increase, an eight-point increase since 1998. Right. So what do you think these rights should look like? And, and secondly, do you agree that they should be based on the level of an animal's intelligence? Yeah. Well, I mean, the rights basically look like, you know, the right to a life that isn't filled with pain. There there was a project back in the 90s. It's still active called the Great Ape Project. And I was a member of that. And it focused on great apes because from a practical point of view, you know, we have a lot better chance of getting some laws changed by working with, say, chimpanzees, other great apes, or, you know, or I always suggest maybe dogs, you know, animals with whom we're familiar or animals who are like us. So, you know, the rights would be to be a right, a right to a life that is pleasurable and happy, the right not to be subjected to intentional harm, um, harm you know, pain, harm, suffering, and death. The, um, the right that if something is done to you in a harmful way that you have legal status that, you know, people won't just write it off. And Stephen Wise and the Non-Human Rights Project um, have been working on this for years, focusing, mo- you know, on chimpanzees. So, so that's what the rights would look like. No, I don't think intelligence has any role at all. Um, I always say that, like, a mouse or a rat or a goldfish or a chimpanzee or a human, we've evolved adaptations, we've evolved behavior patterns to do what we need to do to be card-carrying members of our species. And so, I mean, I think of my friends, and I don't mean this in any pejorative way, but some are brighter than one than others, but mm-hmm. that doesn't mean to me that the, quote, brighter ones deserve more protection from harm. Um, the same among, um, you know, Rats. I mean, you're going to find differences in the intelligence of one rat versus another rat, maybe based on maze running or solving certain problems. It doesn't mean that the rat who's not as smart doesn't suffer as much as the smarter rat. Um, and we certainly apply that to people. I mean, my mom underwent some severe physical and psychological, emotional um, degradation for the last 10 years of her life. And, you know, nobody turned around and said, well, she won't suffer as much, so let her go. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's feelings. It's, it really, to me, comes down to sentience and feelings. And that's why I don't, intelligence doesn't count to me. I know it, I know it sometimes is a harder um, message to get across because people believe, for example, that, you know, chimpanzees are smarter than mice. Chimpanzees are not necessarily smarter than mice. They do what they need to do to be chimpanzees. We humans assign the value. You know, we call chimpanzees higher animals and mice may be lower animals, but biologically there's no such thing as higher and lower animals. But what happens in the practical sense is that the word higher gets translated into more valuable, um, you know, more worthy of protection and smarter. And so as a biologist, I think these cross-species comparisons just, um, to me, they're fraught with difficulties and they're really useless. Maybe talking about primates a little bit more, um, you know, and the difference, how we see our difference, human difference from Mm -hmm. animals and primates in particular. 
So the capacity for speech used to be a bright line separating us from animals, but there's recent research that you've described that one orangutan named Rocky demonstrated essentially linguistic skill by imitating completely the sound and registry of the researcher's voice. So what do you make of this, and, and is there anything that really separates us from apes in particular and animals in general? Yeah, I mean, that Rocky example is a good one because, you know, people hadn't really looked for it, and they found that there's continuity in this vocal fold, they call it behavior. I mean, one of the things that's happening in the field of cognitive ethology is people are beginning to actually study certain, um, you know, say behaviors, certain emotional patterns, and we're learning amazing things about fish that fish can be deceptive. They're good parents. Um, mm -hmm. We learned not too long ago that fish engage in what we call gestural or referential communication. So a fish will use its head to tell another fish where there's food. Hmm. It's almost like, you know, I, I'm pointing to you, Louisa, there's danger there or there's food there. Um, so we're learning you know, a ton of stuff, tool use, you know, New Caledonian crows make and use more sophisticated tools, they say, than chimpanzees. So once again, that kind of speciesism goes down the tubes when we look at what we know and we look at people actually studying the behaviors. I mean, um, prairie dogs have an incredible incredibly large and varied um, vocal repertoire. And people say that it rivals that of the great apes. And when you think about the life history of prairie dogs, um, they must have a need, the evolution of becoming a prairie dog, to be able to communicate you know, certain messages in um, a certain way. So as a cognitive ethologist, what's really exciting to me is people are beginning to actually study things and not say, you know, you know, not say things like, nah, they're a bird, they can't use tools, or it's a fish, you know, they, you know, he or she can't tell another fish where there's food. So that's why I love the field, because it's, it's, it's burgeoning, and as we said earlier on, we need to use those data to protect the animals. Well, also what you're describing is a cry for humility. Don't know. <laughs> no, that's a yeah. I always say that you know we we are definitely homo hubris, you know, or, or something like that. I mean, right? It it is a cry for humility. But you know, the other thing that I think is important is that if you really buy into which I do, you know, a lot of um, evolutionary biology, then we're really we're really appealing to Charles Darwin's ideas of evolutionary continuity, which is very simply put that the differences among species are differences in degree rather than differences in kind. So they're shades of gray, not black and white. So if we do something, you know, other animals do it too. That's, that's a little simplistic, but it, it's not that simplistic. You know, um, what separates humans from other animals? I mean, we're amazing beings. We have big brains. Other animals don't program computers or worry about taxes or send members of their species to the moon, um, design machines. I, I'm not saying that facetiously, but that's who we are. But we shouldn't use that or those 
cognitive capacities to say that we're better than them. We're just different from them, but different doesn't mean better. So maybe along those lines, you've been involved in a UN Harmony for Nature dialogue and serve as a member of the Holistic Science Group. And you shared with them your thoughts and views on what an Earth jurisprudence should look like. Can you summarize some of those ideas? Well, Earth jurisprudence basically looks, it's, I, I like to think of it freedom and justice for all, and it recognizes that humans are part of a larger community, a, a larger, you know, biotic community made up of other animals and, and their homes and, and landscapes. Um, what I find incredibly exciting about this program, in fact, there's going to be a meeting at the UN, and I, um, I have to read the email more carefully, but I think I've been asked to give a talk at this meeting. What I really like about the program is, number one, it's, it's global, and it's bringing in people from dis- different disciplines from all over the globe. And number two, I love the idea of looking at the earth as a community. I mean, if we really begin to factor in other humans and non-humans and view us all as a community working together, I actually think a lot of the killing will stop. I really, um, once again, a lot of my friends go, oh, you're just naive. But, But if we really believe that we're in this all together, if you will, then that would be one road to more harmony, which is, you know, the name of the program, basically, at the UN. Um, So each of us in the program had to answer four questions and what what, um, our views or what our school of thinking would look like from an earth jurisprudence point of view. So I focused on compassionate conservation, and I focused on the notion of personal rewilding, Compassionate conservation, once again, being motivated by first do no harm and all individuals count, recognizing that every being has value and needs to be, and their life needs to be taken into account. And um, the first, you know, the first do no harm, really meaning that we need to really strive for peaceful coexistence among everyone. You know, the, the bottom line, and conservation psychologists are showing this constantly, is when other animals lose we lose. We, we don't realize it, but it's, it's win-win when we care for other animals and their homes, and we lose a lot when we just wantonly harm and kill them. Mm-hmm. So you're talking a bit about kind of a return to a very, very ancient story of our relationship with the Earth and the Mother Earth and the Gaia, and we're all part of this community. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, in a sense, I am. Exactly. Yeah, I'm looking for people to accept the fact that each individual is part of a global community. We all need to work together. We get rid of borders and boundaries, um, if you will. Um, there are non-human animals and there are human animals. I've, I, as a biologist, I, I mean, when I watch programs like Planet Earth or Life or documentaries, I just, I'm amazed at diversity and I'm amazed at what we're learning. And, you know, once again, if we just incorporate that into our actions and our actions are motivated more by a sense of community, then I do think things will change. It, it ain't going to happen overnight. <laughs> that's, 
that's right. my bumper sticker. Um, you know, and the other side of this, Louisa, is we got to get the children. I do a lot of work with yeah. with Jane Goodall and and her Roots and Shoots groups. And uh, recently, in an interview, you know, someone said, "Well, you know, can you think of one place you'd focus?" And <clears throat> it's really hard to think of one place. But I just said, you know, I'd rewild the kids. I'd Right. I call it undoing the unwilding through education, you know, sitting at your computer and, you know, playing with friends who you've met, never met on Facebook, um, staying inside, not going outside. So I would just focus on kids and hope that they would incorporate into their heart and into their physical being, their just physical well-being, the importance of getting outside and hoping that those sorts of exposures will also um, make them better guardians of animals in the earth. And conservation psychologists are clearly showing that, that those sorts of experiments, those, those sorts of experiences mm-hmm. are very positive. And when people are feeling positive, they're more likely to do good things. So yeah. um, Makes- there's a really big picture here. You know, the other picture is that, Non-human animals are inherently cooperative. Sure, they fight. I mean, it would be wrong to think they don't, but the data that are coming out shows that more than 90% of behavior of animals who have been studied is what we call pro-social or positive. And there's been recent research showing that, in fact, the same for humans, that we're predominantly cooperative good people. And I know that in the political situations around the world, we tend to forget that, but the political systems are only made up of a very small percentage of people. They have a lot of power. But um, a psychologist named Daka Keltner at University of California, Berkeley, has a wonderful book called Born to be Good. And um, it was published about six or seven years ago. But more research is showing that humans are inherently cooperative. So we need to tap into that, our genes, if you will, of this inherent cooperation and things will get better, but it's going to take a while. You know, it's, it's just not going to happen overnight. But speaking uh, for something that you call a victory for conservation psychology um, and people working together to achieve that victory is the uh, cancellation earlier this spring of the Florida black bear hunt. Uh, following yeah. enormous protests and after killing by hunting of over 300 bears last year. And you were heavily involved in this case. Can you talk about what you think this victory means? I think this victory is huge, and slowly but surely it's getting a lot of traction. Um, the people, you know, the people running the campaigns down there were doing it 24-7. Um, mm. They were doing it without name-calling. They were doing it based on the science and, and, and the ethics. And, you know, one of the things is that um, Gretchen Weiler, who used to run the Ark Trust and then the Humane Society of the West out of L.A., um, used to say, cruelty can't stand the spotlight. And, <laughs> and I would love bumper stickers yeah. like that all over the place. And that's what happened in Florida that's what's happening in a lot of different situations that people, you just got to put it out there. I mean, what you do, what I do, what a lot of our colleagues and friends do, not expect a gold star, not expect immediate reinforcement, but expect that 
the inherent goodness of people will prevail and people will just say, stop the killing. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, so, so I love that line, cruelty can't stand the stoplight, a spotlight. Spotlight, oh, yeah. 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 Spotlight, yeah. sorry. Uh, I uh, use it all the time. I, I do because it's the same thing you're happening in slow changes like SeaWorld making some changes. Are they enough? No. Is it progress? Yes. McDonald's, all the fast food places, and people get very frustrated. Sometimes they get angry with me and others saying, oh, well, that's not enough. No, it's not enough, but McDonald's isn't going to go vegan tomorrow, and I don't mean that facetiously. They're not going to, you know, SeaWorld is not going to stop everything. So I really believe that we need to be positive and proactive and persistent and passionate and just keep moving forward. And when you get down to, like, delistings, you get down to the way in which, you know, a lot of your major interests and in how carnivores are protected, you've just got to keep putting it out there. You've got to not get frustrated. And you have to realize that there's a lot of battles to be fought, if you will. But in the end, I think we're going to win by being passionate and positive and, um, and just showing clearly that in the on, you know on the large scale that the way we quote manage um, other animals by killing them <laughs> it doesn't work. I agree. Uh, and speaking this, since you mentioned delisting, I'd like to follow up with a question about your take on Yellowstone. And of course, here there's this heated debate about whether trophy hunting of grizzly bears is appropriate, whether it's appropriate to remove federal protections, given that those protections were so critical to getting grizzly bears sort of halfway out of this very vulnerable state. And we expect a decision to be made by the end of the year by Fish and Wildlife Service. So you've watched this issue for a very long time, and uh, can you share your perspectives on this? And you know, well, you know more, you know far more than I do about it. <clears throat> so I come from a very generic, and um, I come first of all a generic position. I am 100% against trophy hunting of any any being, including humans, because I know that some people engage in that, but Mm. um, I'm I'm just against it. There's no reason to kill animals as trophies. Um, It objectifies them. It completely removes any value to their life, any, you know, the value they might have. And that's why I call it often trophy murder. It's Mm -hmm. premeditated. You know, we have the situation of Cecil, for example, that generated global, global outrage. I mean, it's it's really too early to tell whether the outrage is going to make a difference, but I'm thrilled there was outrage. And then, of course, the killing of Blaze in Yellowstone last Mm -hmm. year generated an incredible amount of rage among people. And once again, you know, these animals, it's tragic. I mean, they become martyrs. They become emblematic of what I think is a sickness in society. I just, I mean, trophy hunting just makes no sense to me. And I actually know people who hunt. I wish they didn't hunt. But I know people who hunt who really, really disdain trophy hunting. So the hunters themselves are just totally outraged by people who travel around the world looking for animals to kill. I mean, that, when, you, when you boil it down, that's what they're doing, right? They're, they're traveling all over the world to kill other animals, right? I mean, I mean you know, and I'm not going to sanitize it. 
and and the the argument that it's you know, you know the trophy hunting serves conservation purposes. I mean, there's enough data out there to show that it doesn't at all. So, you know, even if one wanted to get beyond the egregious ethics, um, it, it doesn't serve any biological purpose at all. Mark, you mentioned personal rewilding earlier, but you never, you didn't haven't yet explained what you think that is, and maybe you could share your thoughts. Sure. Um, the, the, you know, so the term rewilding originally was introduced, you know, to, in, uh, to make um, passages for animals to be able to move absent human, absent the presence of humans, so overpasses and underpasses and corridors. And, you know, one of the best examples is the Yukon to the Yucatan, the Y to Y corridor. So I thought about that a lot, and I thought about, and, you know, corridors in our body. And what came to me really on a long bike ride um, and a series of hikes was that, we could rewild our bodies in that sense, starting from the heart, personally, by reconnecting or connecting or, and becoming re-enchanted with nature. And the feelings we get in our heart would then transmit to, you know, our brain and muscles. And I, I really mean that. And so I thought of pathways and corridors in our body. And it's very individual. You might rewild differently from me. But that's okay as long as you're becoming reconnected to nature and other animals and you're using that, um, those, re those connections um, on their behalf. Um, some people, I mean, actually, it's, it's, been very, um, it's been a very popular notion. Um, there's a woman who formed, there's a couple of rewilding groups that are formed around the country, oh. and a woman from New York wrote me and said that she planted a garden on the top of her apartment. She knew nothing about birds and bees, she said. Mm -hmm. And over the course of a year or so, she became an expert. And now her neighbors come up to her and instead of killing insects, they want to know what they have. Or she describes, mm -hmm. and, you, know, um, you know, all the birds who were up there. So that kind of, um, that's what I mean by personal rewilding. A couple of years ago, I was in Central Park in New York City, I was visiting my family, and um, I saw these two kids, and they were walking towards me, and I was watching squirrels. And, you know, one of them said, what are you doing, mister? So I told him I was watching squirrels. And the woman they were with, I don't know if she was a, a nanny or their mom, was thoroughly disinterested. Mm. But the kids said, what, well, what are they doing? And I, I said, do you have a dog? And they did. They lived with a little dog in New York City. And I said, well, squirrels are mammals, and they're like your dog, and they like to play. And one of the boys said, oh, yeah, my dog likes to play. Within five minutes, I had budding ethologists. <laughs> right, right. No, seriously. Right. So, you know, the, the bottom line, once again, is I don't know whether that experience made a difference. It surely didn't hurt them. Mm -hmm. So that would be an example of personal rewilding. And you can do it by taking walks. You can do it by watching birds and squirrels, by talking to animals. Um, I've had people tell me, you know, well, this woman in New York, she rewilded via plants. So, mm -hmm. so the, what I like to, the, the way I like to cash it out, Louisa, is that people will, will connect or reconnect and become re-enchanted with nature in their own ways and where they live. And there's these big programs called biophilic cities, 
which mm-hmm. basically mean they're cities that are working really hard to factor nature and other animals into the plan, if you will. Um, I, some people have to, quote, rewild by watching documentaries. They live in places where you can't do it. Um, about, oh, God, it could be 10 or 15 years ago, um, Jane Goodall and I visited a high school in Denver, and um, there was a Roots and Shoots group there, and I was really touched because the kids working in the Roots and Shoots group were becoming rodent experts because they lived where rats lived. All right. You know? So that was, yeah. it was really, I mean, it was, it, it, it stilled me. Their enthusiasm, you know, saying, God, we're really learning about these animals. And, wow, you know, they live in family. I mean, I just remember this experience. In a sense, it rewilded me about certain things because I had never lived in that situation. And, you know, that would be an example. You know, that would be an example of, you know, if you will, personal rewilding. That's also context dependent. And then I remember years ago there was a Roots and Shoots group in Jordan who was very concerned with water issues, mm-hmm. as they should. So, so that's what I mean by the personal reconnection um, and letting your heart motivate your way. Yeah. So something we can all engage in in a day-to-day life. Easy. It's, it, yeah. it doesn't take a, it, I always say to people, it doesn't take a penny. And, mm-hmm. and if, you, if you take a walk, I mean, I really mean this. So you look out your window, there's the ingredients for rewilding. Yep, exactly. Yep. Well, thank you very much, Mark. Uh, you're listening to The Grizzly Beat with Louise Wilcox, and we're here with Dr. Mark Beckoff. Thank you very much. <laughs>